Today's scripture reading will be taken from John 20, verses 19 through 30. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and, the pl and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put your hands and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may Excuse me, and may believe you may have life in him. Thank you. It's word. Imagine standing before a gathering of good and wise skeptics to make a speech about goodness, the meaning of life, the point of history, the nature of the Almighty God, and the pathway to that God. And having no material at your disposal, but an account of a humiliating, bloody execution at a garbage dump outside a rebellious city in the Middle East. It's your task to argue that this story is the key to everything in life and to all that we know about God. Imagine this, knowing that your message will be a stumbling block to the Jewish listeners and foolishness to the Gentiles. This is precisely the position of Paul in Corinth and in city after city. Paul had to proclaim that this whipped, bloodied, scorned, and derided Jew from Nazareth was God with us. Paul was given an impossible task. And what was the result of his message? The vast majority of listeners scoffed at him and rejected him. 
But some believed, and they formed the church. And some others believed through them, and others believed through them, and so on and so on, until our world was transformed, and hundreds of millions of people worship Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us the same mission as Paul, the same resource and power, and the same message. Let's pray. Father, meet us today in this extraordinary passage to draw out what each, you'd have each one of us here today. For Lord, we want to listen. Open our hearts to your spirit and what he would say. In Jesus' name, amen. Now last week, Travis covered the resurrection of Jesus, his appearance to Mary Magdalene, and then looked at John and Peter's discovery of the empty tomb. John and Peter left confused and returned to the disciples. Our passage opens with the disciples cowering in a room behind locked doors, fearful of being arrested or worse. They had no intention of publicly identifying with Jesus. If nothing changed, all that Jesus died for would become meaningless. His sacrifice would be in vain. It would be like a buried treasure that no one knows about because the gospel message would have died with those disciples. But everything changed once the resurrected Jesus appeared in that room. We're going to look at what happened in that room and what happened the next week with Thomas and then look at the conclusion that John draws from those two events and from the writing in his book. And what we're going to see is our mission, our resource, and our message. So we start with our mission. Our text tells us that Jesus appeared in the room, even though the doors were locked. He just appeared. Apparently, he miraculously walked through those doors just as his body had transported itself through the grave clothes. Then he offers a very conventional greeting. Peace be with you. Peace, the word shalom. And then he showed him his hands and his side. And this drove home the realization that Jesus was alive. Jesus had risen from the dead. And they were astonished and they celebrated joyfully as any one of us would if we had a loved one return from the grave. Then Jesus commissions them, opening with the same blessing that he began with. And we read that in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. The disciples' mission, our mission is to be sent into the world in the same way that the Father sent Jesus Christ into the world. You know, we all want to impact the lives of others. We all want to feel that we can make a difference, even if it's a small difference in the lives of others. We, we want to matter. Jesus gives us the greatest mission of all. There, there's many good missions, 
that people pursue. And at the top of the list is those who save people's lives, whether it be medical workers, police officers, firefighters, soldiers. Many of us grew up as, as children hoping to be one, one of those heroes. But the mission that Jesus Christ gives us is even greater. It's a mission that saves souls for eternity. This is Jesus' calling. The saving of souls, the giving of the gift of spiritual life, showing the pathway to eternity with God. And Jesus sends us out just as the Father sent him. Now, we aren't going to give our lives for the sins of others. We are grateful that Christ gave his life for our sins. But we are to be the instruments of God in bringing that life-saving message to the world. And this is what it, Jesus told his disciples. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. How was Jesus sent? Well, first he was sent to manifest the glory of the Father. He was God incarnate. He was to show the world what God would live like because he was God and he displayed the glory of God. We too are to be testimonies to the glory of God by becoming more and more what we are created to be, the image of God, the image of Jesus Christ. We're to manifest God's compassion and his love, his mercy and his grace, his holiness and his justice, his valuing of every life and welcoming everyone to himself. We're not God, but we are the body of Jesus Christ. We are to manifest the character of God in the way we honor God, the way we honor one another, and the way we reach and love the world as God loves that world. As Jesus taught, we are the light of the world that people could see our good works and glorify God. How are we doing? What is the testimony of the church today? We need to be showing the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus was also sent to bring God's truth. He was the truth. And he confronted his community and his age with that truth. He taught us what life is to be. And that this truth sets us free. We've been given God's word. We need to live by it. We need to let it direct our lives. And we need to be, stand on it without wavering and share it with a broken world around us. Jesus was sent to give us life. He provided that through his death and his resurrection. And the disciples were to bring that message to their world. And we are as well. And it was difficult to do it at their time. They were faced with persecution. Their Lord and mentor had just been executed. Many aspects in their culture, as we said earlier, their message was, was a stumbling block to the Jewish religious community. It was foolishness to the Gentiles and to the intellectuals. But still, God opened doors and hearts to the gospel. It's becoming increasingly difficult to share the gospel today. 
Christianity and the church are no longer respected as we used to be. We're seen more and more as a part of the problem and then as a part of the solution. And it's enough to lead us to say, what's the use? Who's going to really believe we'll just be ridiculed? That's why it's important to pay attention to the first words that Jesus opens with. Peace be with you. It's the experience of that peace, that shalom, that should be the foundation out of which we evangelize. Notice verse um, 1427. Jesus said to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace, my peace I give to you. It's not, not the world. It's not a peace as the world gives to you. So let not your hearts be troubled. Let not. Let not them be afraid. See, the disciples grasped the peace, the shalom. And that word peace is more than just be at rest. It means to have an inner peace in the storms of life. It means to have a joy. It means to have the fullness of God, what God wants to bring us in life. It means fulfillment itself. And the disciples had that, and that's why they were able to go out and preach to a hostile world even though their lives were at stake. They had a peace that the world didn't have, that they would not be troubled. So for us to evangelize the way God would have us, to have that courage, it's the first to have that peace. And when we have that peace, we will want to share the gospel. You know, I look around at my, my neighbors often and I say, you know, why do they want Christ? They're not interested, either not interested in the afterlife or they just have this idea God's going to accept everybody. And, and they seem to be having good lives. They have nice families. They're living morally. They're helpful to the community. They seem to be happy. There are not many troubles in their lives. And so I sometimes wonder, why share the gospel with them? It's not going to touch their lives. And the reason is, I'm not experiencing that shalom. Because if I was experienced that peace, that joy, that presence of God, that fullness, I would realize they don't have what I have. And then I would be compelled to share the gospel with them. The first thing we need to do in evangelism is let God work himself into our lives. And then evangelism won't be something we have to do. It'll be something we desire to do. But we can get all excited and motivated to share the gospel with every living being, but our excitement and our words can't bring a person to Christ. Only God brings conversion. It's supernatural. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul was very frustrated at the, the church in Corinth because they were exalting people as people led others to Christ. They were exalting Paul and Barnabas and Apollos. And, and Paul says this, Who are we? We're nothing. I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the growth. And so Jesus sent out his disciples. When he sent them out, he equipped them 
with what they needed, the Holy Spirit. We read verse 22. When he said this, he breathed and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this verse has confused many of us because we see this, Jesus saying, receive the Holy Spirit, and yet we don't really see the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through them till the day of Pentecost. So what actually happened? Why didn't they have a Pentecost experience when Jesus breathed? Why did that come in Acts? And so commentators have wrestled with this, and I've just settled with D.A. Carson, who spends seven pages in his commentary uh, proving his point. And we conclude with him that Jesus' exhalation and command receive the Spirit are best understood as a kind of acted parable pointing forward to the full endowment of the Holy Spirit still to come. What it said there is, Jesus is picturing through his breath, because Jesus isn't going to be there when the Holy Spirit comes. He's picturing through his breath that this is the Holy Spirit. It comes through Jesus Christ. Christ sends it. But we see that Holy Spirit come upon the disciples on Pentecost, and the result is 3,000 people believe that day, even though they're under the shadow of the cross in Jerusalem, where Christ had been crucified 50 days earlier. The Holy Spirit is critical to our evangelism. He is the one that brings people to Christ. I remember when uh, early in my Christian days, I, would, I shared Christ and shared the gospel with my brother David three times. And he, no response. And one day I took him to church and the pastor preached the gospel and asked people to receive him. As I drove home with my brother, I asked him, so what did you think? And he said, I prayed to receive Christ. He said, why didn't you share that message with me? I did three times. But it was when the Holy Spirit worked in my brother and made the connection, then he believed. I was right to preach, but without the Spirit, it's not going to happen. The Holy Spirit's ministry in us is critical. He brings the fruit of the Spirit. He brings that peace. Also the joy, the shalom, the love. In many ways, the fruit of the Spirit is an experience of the shalom. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us that out of which the gospel will flow, in which our lives will be the right testimony to the world. And the Holy Spirit emboldens us, as we see in the book of Acts, in verse chapter 4, verse 31. They prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with this Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word with boldness. And the Holy Spirit affirms the truth of the gospel and offers us wisdom as we share. Have you ever been in a conversation about Christ and you get a little concerned because you're like, I, I don't know if I'll be able to answer the questions. I'm not quite sure exactly the way to put this. And all of a sudden, a Bible verse comes to your mind. Or all of a sudden, a, a thought that God, you thought were like in the deep recesses that you could never reach, but all of a sudden, it comes to the surface. 
to the Holy Spirit taking what you've, you've built into your life and bringing it out at the right moments. He will be there. He affirms that truth in us and he gives us wisdom. And the Holy Spirit can direct us to specific people. He can put on our hearts, speak to that person. When I was a VISTA volunteer in Northwest Arkansas, I, I worked with other VISTA volunteers. They were all freshly out of college like myself. And one day I heard the pastor, the pastor preached on evangelism. And I got excited, I got convicted, and I said, I am going to speak with every person I work with today. And so I went to the, the, the two women who, who worked with VISTA and I shared Christ and they said, well, thank you. Then I went to guys I had roomed with for a short while. They were both philosophy students, had been philosophy students at Stanford. And they said, uh, no, we really like Nietzsche better than Jesus. And I talked to this couple uh, who had said, you know, we used to be Sunday school teachers. And then I talked to the person I was reporting to. And she was a dynamo. She was terrifying. She was terrifying the top business people in the town, one of which is a nationally known name. So I sat down with her, intent to share the gospel, and I chickened out. It's like, no, I, I can't share it with her. And then, uh, so I said, well, it's great talking to you. Uh, I'll see you later. And then the phone rang. She answered the phone, and as I sat there, it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit that was clear to me, you stay here and talk to her. She got off the phone, and I just continued our conversation. I shared the gospel, and she said at the end, I want to talk more about this. So the next day, I went back, and she wasn't answering the door, but the neighbors from upstairs came down and said, she's not here She's in the psych ward at the hospital. She just put her head through a window in a drunken rage last night. So I went to the hospital. I shared the gospel again. She prayed to receive Christ. The next time I went back, she said, now I know why you're happy all the time. If God gives you that sense of, yes, this is a person to speak to, the Holy Spirit moves us in that way. Then the Holy Spirit also gives us the authority to proclaim the fact that the gospel message and the gospel message alone brings forgiveness. Notice verse 23. Jesus says, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, as we read this, it seems at first that God gives the disciples the powers to forgive. If they forgive, then God has to forgive the people they forgive. If they don't forgive, then God, well, he's not going to forgive them. But it's actually the other way around. This is a perfect tense, not a future tense. He's not saying, if you forgive the sins, God will forgive them. He's saying, if you forgive the sins, they have already been forgiven. 
See, we as Christians can be, are able to tell people, you are not forgiven. You need Jesus Christ. There's no evangelism if we can't say to somebody, you're apart from God and you need forgiveness. They may come back at us and say, well, who, who gave you that authority? And the answer is God. You see, most of us make statements about forgiveness. Some people say, everyone will be forgiven. Others say, good people will be forgiven. Others say, if you follow my religion, you'll be forgiven. How do we have the audacity to stand in the shoes of God and proclaim who's forgiven and who's not forgiven? Unless you have a commission from Jesus Christ that through the Holy Spirit you can pronounce who is forgiven and who's not forgiven. We can say to people, Jesus is the only way and it's not coming from us. Now those are going to be hard words to people. Very difficult to say, you are under God's judgment. So we need to be, can't do it with arrogance. We can't do it out of a sense of self-righteousness. I told them what God wanted me to tell them. We have to do it out of a heart of broken compassion for them. And we need to speak wisely. <clears throat> One time I did this in this way where I said, you probably think it's narrow-minded when I say Jesus is the only way. And that person said, yeah. <laughs> and then I asked, do you, I, I didn't make this up. These are Jesus' words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. Do you know why Jesus said that? Her answer, no. And I was able to say, because our sin separates us from God and Jesus Christ took our sins. He's the only one. He's the only religious leader. He's the only person. He's the only one who ever claimed that I take that sin out of the way so you can have a relationship with God. Jesus says it because he loves you. Let's be wise and compassionate when we share this authority that God has given us. Jesus has given us a mission sends us as God the Father sent him. He gives us a critical resource for that mission, the Holy Spirit. Without him, we can do nothing. And then John uses Jesus' next appearance, Thomas, as a bridge to summarize the message that God wants us to bring to the world. Notice verse 31. John says, These things I have written, and it's really his whole book, the purpose of his book. These things I have written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's our message. You have life in Jesus' name. Believe in Jesus and you'll have eternal life. Now, it would be easier if we were giving this message to people who had already seen Jesus. We don't. So it, it appears to be a lot harder uh, to do it 2,000 years later. 
But if faith only came to those who literally saw Jesus, then only 500 to 1,000 people would ever have believed. But faith comes to those who trust the people who did see. And we do that in many other cases. We trust the experts in education, health, finances. For our eternal soul, we can trust those who were there and passed that message to us. And that's the case that John is building as he shares the story of Thomas. Notice verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the, in his hands the marks of the nails and I put my finger into the mark of those nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas was adamant, arrogantly proclaiming he would never believe without seeing. And he mirrors so many of us. I won't believe until I see it or I experience it. Show me God, then I'll believe. Jesus is very gracious in his response. Jesus deserved to strike Thomas with lightning. But instead, we read, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, do you notice anything about these words? It's a duplicate of the setting that took place a week earlier. It says it's eight days. Now, the Jewish way of reckoning the time was to count the first day, so the first Sunday, as day one. And then seven days later makes age, which makes it the next Sunday. So it's the same day of the week. The disciples are said to be inside. The doors are locked. Jesus appears just like the first time. And then Jesus says, peace be with you, just like the first time. John intentionally describes the identical situation because he is trying to say to all of us that this one who's called the twin should have had a twin faith with the disciples when they believed, when they saw Jesus. It didn't matter whether Thomas was there or not. The same truth is truth. The veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't depend on Thomas seeing it. Nothing changed between the first and second appearance of Jesus. He was just as real when Thomas wasn't there as when he was there. Our lack of faith does not change the reality of facts. I don't want to face the reality of what's happening in Afghanistan and Haiti, but they are realities whether I accept the news stories or not. Whether I am there or not, those things are happening. The same is true of Jesus' resurrection. It may not fit our sensibilities, but our doubts don't change the facts. And Jesus proves this to Thomas in the next couple of verses. He says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. 
Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Shockwaves must have gone through Thomas when Jesus appears. And then Jesus gives him the proof that he demanded. You want to see my hands inside? Here they are. Put your fingers in my hand. Put your hand in my side. That's what you asked for. See, Jesus knows everything that's going on. He knows every one of our thoughts. And that too must have struck, struck uh, pay dirt in Thomas's life. Because we see him say, my Lord and my God. And those words are a crescendo of what John had been building throughout his gospel when he opened the book with, in the beginning was the word Jesus, and that word was with God, and that word was God. And he runs that theme right through the Bible until the biggest doubter of all cries out, my Lord and my God. Notice he doesn't say the Lord and the God. It's my Lord and my God. See, God wants to have a personal relationship with us. That he's ours and we're his. Jesus responds to this with a message to every skeptic, to every cynic, by saying, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Many have believed on the basis of the historical reports around Jesus Christ. They didn't need to see. I believe. Just about all of you believe what you haven't seen because you believe the historical reports because the Holy Spirit has taken those and woven those into your heart. The content of that faith, we are to believe in Jesus. The content of that faith is the person of Christ. He is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. And it's about the work of Christ. He brings us eternal life. And we saw two weeks ago, he did that on the cross. When he said, it is finished, he was saying his work for our salvation was completed on the cross because he took our sin, placed it on himself, and took it out of the way so that we could have life eternal with God. We have a mission. It's the greatest mission in the world. It's an impact you can have that's eternal. And you have the resource as a believer, the Holy Spirit within you, and you have a message so simple. Jesus Christ died for your sins. If you are not yet a believer and the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart this morning, don't resist him. He's saying to you, he's pointing out that yes, you have a sin, you have so much sin that God himself had to send his son to take that sin and that Jesus Christ is the one who did that and that you would stop trusting yourself that your good works or your religion can bring you to God and realize that your sin keeps you from that regardless of how moral or good you seem to be and Jesus took that sin.
place your faith and trust in Christ. If you are a believer, it is intimidating to share your faith, but it's much less intimidating than it was for the disciples. They're the cost for them to share Christ is much greater than us. But you have what they had. A Holy Spirit that can bring you Christ's peace and shalom. That moves us with the message of God. Let's us carry forth the greatest mission on earth. Proclaiming Christ to the world. Let's pray. Our Father... May your spirit work that into my heart so that this, uh, my sermon isn't an inspiration for a moment or even a day, but your spirit brings back this passage, brings back this truth over and over, opens my heart, brings me the shalom out of which I want, which I want to bring to the world, brings me insight in how to speak, and opens hearts and doors for those who you wish to hear. Amen.